Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. My name is Jeff Runyon, and I am the men's ministry pastor here at Fellowship. And I have the privilege of coming alongside the men in our body and just encourage them wherever they are on their spiritual walk, their spiritual journey with Jesus. And as a church, we want to help men and women find wholehearted life in Jesus. So we get to do that together. Um, as Luke mentioned, we're in the middle of a two-part sermon series that began last week uh, around the value that we have of being word-centered as a church. Last week, our teaching pastor, Rob Sweet, presented the first sermon in the series about how this is the living and active and breathing Word of God. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go to our website to listen or to watch that sermon uh, so you can hear that first part of that. Today, we have the privilege of the second part of our sermon series being brought to us by Dr. Rubel Shelley. He's a great friend of fellowship who is going to bring the second part of the sermon series. Not only is this the living and active word of God, but it's reliable and it's trustworthy. We can trust this word. Uh, Rubel brings to us over 30 years of pastoral experience. He has four graduate degrees and he's taught at multiple universities. Uh, but not only that, he brings to us a heart that is undone by the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus Christ. So he's going to be presenting the next sermon in the series to us. Our scripture reading is from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the living word of God for us today. It's great to be back at Fellowship and to have the opportunity of having a piece of the action on this two-part series about the Word of God. When I was back in high school, honestly, I think about 11th grade. You're one of those kids who makes good grades and tests well and you're doing that kind of stuff. <clears throat> And so you're, you're given some different projects and honors assignments, and I don't remember who gave me the assignment. But I read some David Hume when I was in the 11th grade. And David Hume is a great skeptic and a great doubt maker. And because at the age of 15 or 16, I couldn't answer David Hume, in all of my humility, and intellectual perspicacity, I assume that it's at least possible David Hume could not be answered. And so I wrestled for faith for quite a while. Fortunately, I ran into a fellow who'd read a little David Hume and was twice as old as I was. And he gave me some other things to read and engaged me in some conversation. And it set me on a, a track that these graduate degrees are m mostly in philosophy. And my doctorate is in philosophy and I, I teach in the field of philosophy because I went that route, even though I have Bible degrees and languages and all that stuff, I needed to know that the base on which everything stood for faith was firm. 
I'm hard-headed. I, I can be arrogant, but in all honesty, looking back, I really think it was integrity at stake. I can't confess something I don't believe. I can't ask other people to embrace something that I have any doubt about its legitimacy, truthfulness. And so I've spent really all of my adult life testing with a view not toward affirming a prejudice, but going where the facts lead. And on this day, I'm convinced that if they had led to atheism or Buddhism or Islam, I would stand on those grounds. As a matter of fact, my feet stand firmly and confidently in the faith that is the person Jesus Christ. And that the Bible is a reliable and trustworthy guide to Jesus. I think we Christians sometimes get it backward. It's almost as if we think Jesus flitted down, preached the Sermon on the Mount, and passed out Bibles. And said, here, read this and master this. No, Scripture was given over a period of 1,600 years, anticipating, showing, and then explaining the significance of Jesus. The Bible points to Jesus. Jesus is the one who saves. Not your intellectual perspicacity, not your command of scripture, not, not your memorization, not your performance. Jesus revealed in scripture. But there are good people, honest people, not, not bad people who are just out to debunk the faith that you have or that you want your children to have. And by the way, I love the notion of teaching our children to sing scripture. Parents, don't, don't ever let, grandparents, don't ever let your kids and grandkids see you pick your Bible up on Sunday to bring it to church. The other six days of the week, keep it handy. Let them see you read. Sing those songs. Download and, and teach them to sing scripture. But I, there are people who, who think that we Christians are sort of well, like people who take castor oil. You know, we can close our eyes and, and pinch our noses and, and swallow or take a leap of faith. I resent that. I'm a Christian because Christianity is true. I follow Jesus Christ because he is who he claims to be. I have my faith firmly planted in Jesus Christ because that faith stands on an affirmed and verified word of God in Holy Scripture. The text that was read a moment ago from 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is breathed out by God. That's the English Standard Version or the NIV. All scripture is God breathed. I like that a little better really than the old King James Version. All scripture is inspired by God. Inspired Latin. Inspire means to breathe something into. As if a passive word somehow was made alive by God. Actually what Paul says is, no, Scripture is like God's breath in your face. It has the power in it just because it is spoken by God. All Scripture is God-breathed. The material in this book comes from God directly, yes. It is through human authors. And even though we're reading the writings of Moses and Matthew or David or Paul, the finished product 
And this is another classic text about scripture, 2 Peter 1, verse 21. The finished product is not produced by the will of men, but men were speaking from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And that's why, to quote Isaiah now, from Isaiah 55, 11, the word of God will never return empty but will always accomplish what God purposes and shall succeed in the thing for which he sent it. And that's why Rob was able to preach last week from Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living. It's not a passive word awaiting, energizing, either from God or us. The word of God is itself living and active because it's God-breathed. And when God breathes out, when God speaks, things happen. Just in the speaking of it, it is made to be so. Let there be, and boy, was there. And there continues to be because the Word of God creates and upholds. Now, in terms of English translations of the Bible, Rob and Lloyd said that you're going to be using, they're going to be using and teaching principally the English Standard Version in the near future at least. For your own Bible study, serious Bible study, always use a version. That's a technical term. Don't know if you're aware. The King James Version, the New International Version, the New Revised Standard Version, the New International Version. Version is a technical word that means this translation is made by a committee of people. Committees bring to the translation project checks and balances. One person doesn't know everything. He might make a mistake. She might make a mistake in the significance of a word, the, the tense, the, the combination of terms, and the checks and balances. And, and you don't get somebody grinding an ax with one person doing the translation, a version. Now, there, there is no perfect English translation of the Bible. I just haven't had time. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> that there is no perfect translation, but we are so, so fortunate in the 21st century that we have so many really reliable, trustworthy, good translations of the Hebrew, Aramaic, the two languages in which the Old Testament's written, and Greek, all the New Testament written in Greek. We have really, really reliable translations. The, the English Standard Version is a, is a wonderfully reliable translation of the Bible. And that's what I'll be using today because that's, that's the text they're going to be using in the near future. It sometimes comforts Christians, I've found, to point out that the church was built around a translation. That is... The, the church really began to spread through Paul's missionary journeys and, and the church went into those Gentile areas and it goes up into Asia Minor and on into Europe. Well, those were not Jewish people. They didn't know Hebrew and Aramaic. They didn't know Old Testament scripture. They're Gentiles, they're pagans. And so the Bible that the early Christian missionaries used was not the Hebrew text of the Old Testament, but the Septuagint. Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament made probably in Alexandria, Egypt around 325 BC. And the Septuagint's a pretty spotty translation. In some places, it's just downright bad. It, it, has, it has several different insertions into the text of material that in some Bibles appears as apocrypha or deuterocanonical material. But it's inserted right into the text of the Septuagint. They had a really bad translation of the Bible to work from, but they carried the message of Jesus 
into the world of their day and time. I doubt there's any English translation so bad that a person could not learn about Jesus and come to salvation because the key things are, they, they just jump out at you. The key things are, are repeated so many times and they're made so plain that you can't miss it. Yeah, some of the supporting things might be confusing and a, a better translation helps you. But the Word of God is, has come to us in really reliable form and it's a trustworthy word that we have. Those people that I've I'm pretty often in conversation with because I, I work in a discipline at times outside just biblical studies. Again, they, they're not people looking to undermine faith, but they say things like this. You ever heard anybody say, but the Bible is just from so long ago and so far away. The Bible is, is from a time so different from my own. The, the, the Bible has been handed down over so many generations that we have no idea what was in the original language of those prophets or apostles or evangelists because over the hundreds, the thousands of years, the Bible has been translated, interpreted, and the version that's come to us has been changed. Actually, no. The Dead Sea Scrolls, you probably have heard the term. It, it's a deposit of Old Testament manuscripts found in 1947. And before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, the oldest copy of the Old Testament that anybody had was the Aleppo Codex that dates from 900, that's AD 900. The Dead Sea Scrolls were materials buried around 60 AD, and some of those scrolls date back to 75, 100, maybe 150 years BC. The the text of the Old Testament, our knowledge of that text was pushed back fully a thousand years with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And to have confidence that the very Bible we're reading is the same Bible that people were reading in antiquity, what Moses wrote in Torah, what Isaiah wrote, what David wrote. That confidence was bolstered tremendously by the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls because when those documents were found and all of the entire Old Testament was there except for, for two books of the Old Testament, when you pushed it back a thousand years, we're reading exactly the same text that they were reading in the Dead Sea community back in 50, B, 50 A.D., those old scrolls that they had and they valued and that they buried when the Romans, it appeared, were going to invade and take over their homeland. The Dead Sea Scrolls give us confidence that we have a reliable, dependable text. When I teach philosophy, I very often teach from Plato. He's, he's sort of my specialty. And I very seldom get questions from students, well, how reliable a text of Plato do we have? As a matter of fact, we don't have a well-attested Platonic corpus. In terms of any Greek manuscripts of Plato's writings, 300 BC, the oldest ones we have are from 1200, uh, are from 900 to 1000 AD. You've got a 12, 1300 year gap, and you have only a handful of them and none complete. 
Most of the information we have from Plato's materials come from translations dating on into the 16th century in, in other languages than Greek, Latin, Spanish. The Yale University Library, which, which collects all the Platonic material available to us, says there, there are a total of 210 manuscripts all the way from 300 BC to 1600 AD from which we work that text. We, we cobble it together. We have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament materials, some of them a fragment from the Gospel of John, dating to about 125 AD, within 30 years, 40 years of the Gospel of John having been written. And when you talk about translations of those Greek texts that we use to make sure we have a reliable text, Syriac, Coptic, Latin, those texts number into 26 to 27,000 copies. And the science of textual criticism is so precise, you can be absolutely certain that you're reading what Moses wrote, what Isaiah wrote, what David wrote, what Matthew wrote, what Paul wrote, what Peter wrote. We have a reliable text from which we work. But the assaults on the Bible continue. Some of them are not full frontal. A few years ago, when it was a hot property, I read The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. Any of you remember the book, the movie? It's a great page turner. I was flying from New York to Nairobi. I read the book, and I read it at a pretty fast clip. But I also read it with a pink highlighter in my hand because after the title page, there's a page on which nothing is written but the following, in all caps, FACT. Quote, all descriptions of artwork, architecture, documents, and secret rituals in this novel are accurate, close quote. I don't know what the college students that I've come into contact with since that book and the later movie and other books by Brown have become so popular. They assume that representations of the biblical material and history surrounding its formation and transmission, they assume it's true. Here, for example, are some of the allegedly accurate statements that I've just sort of put together from the book. The marriage of Jesus and Mary Magdalene is part of the historical record. There is no historical record of such a marriage. In the Gospel of Thomas, which is the one Dan Brown is particularly fond of in the Da Vinci Code, does not represent them as being married. It has a misogynist view of women. It says women can be saved only if they somehow can first become men. Early Jewish tradition involved ritual sex at the Jerusalem temple. Absolutely absurd. The daughter born to Jesus and Mary was named Sarah. The Dead Sea and Nag Hammadi Scrolls, this is a good one. The Dead Sea and Nag Hammadi Scrolls are the early, earliest Christian records and they antedate the New Testament's four Gospels. They give us better information than the canonical ones. Nothing found in the Dead Sea Scrolls is Christian. All of the documents in the Dead Sea Caves are Jewish documents. They're Old Testament materials and other Jewish materials. Not one line, not one word related to Christianity. And the Nag Hammadi scrolls? Well, in the first place, they're not scrolls, they're codices. But the Nag Hammadi documents, they are Gnostic gospels produced in the third and fourth century after the New Testament canon was formed. 
They're not our earliest documents. They don't give us good information. More than 80 Gospels were considered when the New Testament was being formed. Boy, that's a new one. Nobody had ever heard of that before it hit the Da Vinci Code. The Emperor Constantine selected and edited the four Gospels we have in our Bibles. Utterly false. Constantine did pay for the production of 50 copies of the Bible to be distributed to the churches because previous Roman emperors had made such a determined effort to destroy all the Bibles and Christian documents available. The day of Christian worship was moved from Saturday to Sunday at the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. The day of worship was not discussed at the Council of Nicaea. The day of worship for Christians was Sunday from Pentecost, which was always on a Sunday. Seven Sabbaths plus one day from Passover. It was Sunday from the beginning because that's the day of resurrection. The doctrine of Jesus' deity was debated at Nicaea and it passed by a very narrow vote. There was no vote at Nicaea. The doctrine of the deity of Christ was not debated at Nicaea. Nicaea was about how do the divine and human natures of Jesus relate to each other. Now, I'm, I pull from Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code not to mock him, not to be disparaging. It does sell in the fiction section of the library. But to say there are concerted ways go, that people are going about in our own day and time to undermine confidence in Scripture. Brown's works are a concentrated attack on Catholicism and a generic attack on Christianity and Christian Scripture. Not one of those assured, accurate statements begins to be true out of that book. In fact, when I was reading the book on the plane, here's what I thought. The next time I teach a course in Christian apologetics, I think it would be so cool to use the Da Vinci Code as the textbook. And I did. I took a group of honors students and I broke out 50 to 60 of the key ideas in the Da Vinci Code, assigned them three each to research for factual accuracy. I reverse engineered a course in Christian apologetics that to this day, those students thank me for to say, we had no idea how strong the evidence for the integrity of the Bible is until we were reading and having to think critically about somebody trying to undermine the case. As with any document that's in its newest parts, 2,000 years old, no, we don't have external verification for everything that's in the biblical record. But we have enough and enough of the things that are really difficult to believe that Jesus is presented as candidly as he was. That he dreaded it and Gethsemane really happened. That on the cross he cried, my God, why have you forsaken? If you're making up a mythical character, He's always totally heroic and, and you never see that he's really human. And you certainly wouldn't trust the record of his resurrection to women. The women are the first and primary witnesses to the resurrection. And in the first century, women couldn't even testify in court because they were considered unreliable. If you were writing a, a non-factual book, you, you'd let a priest or you'd let a government official be the ones testifying to Jesus being alive from the dead, not a group of women. 
And you certainly wouldn't, in, wouldn't entrust the beginning of this new Jesus movement to a bunch of jerks like the apostles. Well, I mean, one of them turned against him, denied him, and for money. And then when the real crunch came, what happened with the other 11? Turn tail and run. The biblical story is believable because it is so real and so counterfactual to the way myths are constructed about their heroic figures. But if you really want to get into the matter of how reliable, how trustworthy is this really the Word of God, my recommendation is try reading it. And sometimes when somebody says, there's just so many mistakes in the Bible, so many errors in the Bible, the Bible is just, I said, name one. Well, I mean, I've heard that. Well, can you name one for us to talk about? Well, I actually have not read it. Why don't we read it? Maybe start with the Gospel of John. The ultimate proof of the power of this word as being God-breathed, living and active is just to get into it. Not, not to stand over it, to dissect it, but to stand within the story and to live and breathe the account of Jesus. I want to draw this together with a text from Luke 24, and if you have your Bible or your phone. Uh, <clears throat> you might want to turn to Luke 24. It's the story that we know as the Emmaus story. Luke 24, uh, beginning at 13, that very day, the day of resurrection. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, I don't know if he was wearing a hoodie, or whether, as I suspect, there was some supernatural intervention that, that just kept them from being able to spot him and recognize him because he wanted to test some things with them. He said to them, what's the conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas, Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they related, well, there was this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. And we really had hoped that he might be the one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one that Moses and the prophets had said would come and would set right all that had gone wrong. But they killed him. Now some women are saying he's alive, but you know, women are saying that. The text picks up, <clears throat> go all the way down to 25, and he said to them, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, <clears throat> if that seems a little bit raw-boned and in your face, 
oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, they're explaining the expectation of Messiah that they had out of the Bible teaching they were getting in their day from the rabbis and the scribes. Because you see, as they had read the Old Testament, and there are lots of them, they focused on the glory texts, the wonderful things, the mighty things that would happen when the Messiah appeared, and they overlooked, maybe chose to ignore the ones that would have the Messiah being despised, rejected, not riding in on a prancing white stallion to throw out the Romans. That was the common expectation of the Messiah. He would be a military deliverer. The Zechariah prophecy, oh, he'll come into Jerusalem riding on the colt of a donkey. And that's why Jesus says, oh, how foolish, how slow to believe. You, you don't have the full report. You are listening only to what some of your teachers are telling you to think of in terms of the Messiah and how you would recognize him. Now watch this next statement. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now Jeff, that was a men's ministry. That was a small group I'd like to be in. That was an impromptu Bible study that I wish they'd taped. Okay, it's the first century. They didn't have the facility. Jesus went through the narrative of Scripture and gave them the full picture of what Scripture had been telling about Messiah. Beginning with Moses... As Jesus explained Moses and the Torah, he did not tell them about a perfect man who did a perfect thing in delivering Egyptian Jewish slaves to the mountain where he thought up some perfect laws to guide their lives. He told them about a man so flawed that in fact he was a criminal on the lamb from Egypt and hiding out in the Negev and having given up the idea of being able to help deliver his people because but God at a burning bush calls him by grace. Not because he's a perfect man and should do this. And not only calls him as an act of grace, but then empowers him against his protestations. I, I can't do it. What if I'm with you and what if I give you the power? What if I give you the words? And, and he led them out by a mighty hand, God doing the signs, bringing them to Sinai, God giving the 10 good words that he brought down, not once but twice. And when he get a, got into the prophets, I wonder, I wonder if he said, have you read Isaiah 53? Isaiah 53 is the Old Testament text quoted and echoed most frequently in the New Testament explaining Jesus. It is the one about the despised and rejected one. The one by whose wounds and stripes we are healed. I wonder if he went into the Psalter and maybe from Psalm 9 talked about the wondrous works of God or Psalm 51, David's prayer of, of penitence after his sin with Bathsheba. 
wanting to know that God would forgive him and cleanse him and make him white as snow again. Or Psalm 103, the anticipation of a God so great that he could take our human sin and either drown it in the depths of the sea, an, an idea we echoed in one of the songs we sang this morning, or another metaphor that I like, put them as far away from us as the east is from the west. At the end of that Bible study, whoa, they had a fuller picture than their teachers had been giving. So verse 28, they draw near the village and Jesus says, well, you know, I, I actually need to go another. They said, no, 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 please stay and eat. And while they're eating, he's breaking bread and suddenly they recognize him. Did they see the wounds where the nails had been driven in his wrist? Did he simply lift the veil? And when they recognized him, sort of the reverse of what he would do that evening, materializing in the locked room with the 11, he, he simply disappeared from their midst. Watch how the story closed. Verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures? People, brothers and sisters, ambivalent reader, skeptic. If in fact you put yourself into the Gospels and begin to read this story, you begin to get it because it begins to get you. I love the language. Didn't our hearts just burn within us? Tim Keller puts it this way. Jesus was saying to those on the road to Emmaus that it's not about them or what they do, it's about him. And Jesus is saying to you today through his word that it's not about you or what you have to do, it's about him and what he has done. And the call for us is what? To believe. The call is not for you to be a scholar. The call is not for you to do enough. The call is not for you to undo harm you've done or unring bells of sin that you've already rung. The call is to believe that God's grace has become personal through Jesus and that this word has led you to see the one alone who can save you. Our hearts burned. We felt a drawing to God that we had never sensed before. The, the, the scribes and the rabbis, yeah, they had taught us and we'd memorized some texts at Scripture. But when Jesus opened the Scriptures... Oh, we felt the presence of God. When they finally grasped that all of holy writ, every line of the Bible, leads you to Jesus. They got it. That's my story. Reading him, a lot of doubts created. Can it... Can it possibly be true? Are, are the assaults simply smart people telling things that I didn't know and that my little church didn't tell me? I've spent my adult life writing about, speaking about, reading 
modern and so My heart burns. Like Wesley describing his experience of coming to know Christ. He said, I felt a strange warming of my heart to God. I don't accept the Bible because somebody on the internet said it's true. <laughs> you know, if we read it on the internet, it's supposed to be true. I accept the Bible as the true and reliable word of God because I've read the whole book. I've seen the movies you watch. I've, I've lived with this book and I've, I've asked my own questions of the book about its authenticity, reliability, and I've listened to the other doubt-making questions that other people have asked. And Jesus stands as the centerpiece to all of human history. Imagine, if you would, 40 poets, some of them writing in the 5th century, 12th, 14th, 17th, 20, end of the 21st, 40 poets over a 1,600-year period on three continents, writing in three languages, maybe English and Swahili and Japanese. And somebody pulls together the lines these 40 people have written over that 1,600-year period in three languages, and when they put them together, they are perfect verse. They're a dramatic, beautiful poem that takes the breath of all who read it. Here is a book written by some 40 different people over a 1,600-year period on three continents and three languages. And the person who chooses to look at the data surrounding to see this is an authenticated, a reliable, a trustworthy word and then reads this attested word, hears a sure word from God. The symphony plays in all of its parts, harmonious testimony to one fact. No, one person. Jesus of Nazareth. And our faith stands on that sure word of God to the end that your heart might burn within you and that you would let it go out to him, feel his everlasting love surround you and know that that personal encounter with Jesus has made all things new for you. May you learn, receive, hear, taught from this pulpit at Fellowship Bible Church, the message of Jesus, so that that will be your experience of him because that is why scripture is given. I repeat, not Jesus pointing to master the Bible and do enough, but the Bible pointing to Jesus saying, trust what he's done, that it's enough, more than enough. Holy God, how firm a foundation you have laid for our faith in this holy word that you have given through prophets, apostles, evangelists, and that you have preserved across the centuries against the determined efforts of, of its enemies to destroy and to take off the face of the earth. How firm a foundation you've laid in giving to us easy access in, in reliable translations to be able to study and, and learn the various lines, texts, important parts of Scripture, all of which, when properly read, have one theme, point us to Jesus in whom alone all things are made full.
thank you for this reliable, trustworthy, God-breathed word that's able to stand us complete in Christ. And I thank you for this church and its commitment to being a word-centered, word-teaching, word-bounded body of your people. And I pray for the people in this room that we will take Scripture seriously to read, to study, to think for ourselves, to ask the questions, to build the faith, to have our own hearts warmed by the saving power of Jesus come into our lives to transform us. May it be so. In the name of Jesus, amen.